All right, you got your Bibles? As we near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we come face to face with the core doctrines of Christianity. Paul sums up the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this Gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you would have believed in vain. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared and he goes on. You see, the core doctrines of the Christian faith, Jesus died, proof of that he was buried, He was raised from the dead, proof of that. There are all kinds of witnesses who saw the resurrected Savior. Death and its proof, resurrection and its proof. And since these are the key doctrines of the Christian faith, we have to move with some caution through this text of Matthew. And I think we have to deal very carefully with these texts because the plan of God hangs in the balance as the Son of God hangs on the cross, and he's hanging naked on a cross. It's made of rough wood. He's been beaten and bleeding and left to die. Before we get into our actual text this morning, I want to make sure that we understand what an offense the cross really is in the first century and what it remains. The offense of the cross to the Romans. The cross was so odious to the Romans that they refused to allow their own citizens to be crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified, no matter what you did. Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He said, quote, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one sheer murder to slay one, what then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. To the Jewish mind, if the mention of the cross was was offensive to the Romans, it kind of was even more so to the Jews because the Jews put it into a religious context. In Deuteronomy 21, it says, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole up on a tree, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who, hung, who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. If you hang on a tree, cross is hanging on a tree, You're abandoned by God. You're a reproach. And so crucifixion crucifixion takes place outside the city gates, outside the walls. You do not want to do that inside the sacred precinct of Jerusalem. To the early Christians, the early followers of Christ, they knew all of this, and yet they would actually speak of the cross. They talked about Jesus hanging on the tree. They were not ashamed of the cross. We aren't either. 
And today, like Paul, who wrote about the glory of the cross, we, we preach everyone, they've got to know about what happened to the Savior. We use crosses in our graveyards. We wear them around our necks. Why this remarkable transformation? Well, perhaps I think time has dulled our senses to what really goes on in a crucifixion. But also because we know that it was by a crucifixion, that it was on a cross that Jesus took the curse of God for our sin on himself. Paul made that very clear, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, quoting Deuteronomy. For us, the offense has become a place of hope. Last week, we left off in our story that we're walking through in the book of Matthew. We left off with what? Simon from Cyrene is carrying the cross pole of Jesus to the cross. He's so beaten, he cannot even carry this thing that weighs 100 pounds. And so let's pick up the story right there. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 27, verse 33. Let's read the whole thing in context here. Verse 33. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right side and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads at him and saying, who are you, going to you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from that cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. There are so many ways to organize our thoughts around this text that I thought it perhaps best, let's just walk through six events that take place, six actions that Matthew mentions in the last moments and hours of the life of Jesus. Matthew has not been real good at chronology. He hasn't marked the passing of time for that matter, but the markers that he uses in this story, they just slow it down. If Simon, who'd carried the cross, had hung around, which we kind of think he did, 
This is what he would have seen. Six events. Number one, wine mixed with gall. Verse 34, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. It seems to me this is something that, that the wealthy women of the city would do. There's a crucifixion. They'd come out, and they would brought this mixture of wine and gall, which, which acted as an anesthetic. It dulled the pain in your senses as you're getting ready to be crucified. But sin against a holy God, it required extreme punishment. And in order for him to completely fulfill this position as our substitute, he wanted nothing to do with any anesthetic, no deadening of the pain. He wouldn't even drink it. He came to that moment to fare the, bull, the full weight, the brunt of the wrath of God against sin. You're not going to take an easy way out and use some kind of anesthesia. And also, if you recall, what did he say about wine at the Last Supper? Huh, I'm not going to drink it till I drink it with you in the kingdom. Don't give me wine. I'm going to celebrate with you. Second thing is this gambling for his clothes. Verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. It's what soldiers did in that kind of a situation. Somebody's got to own the clothes. Who gets them? And so they roll their dice. In John, there's more details. There's a nod to, to the Old Testament prediction of this moment, but not in Matthew. The soldiers, they are completely ignorant as to who this Jesus is, and they could care less. Now, they're going to get more interested as the story moves forward, but not here. Third thing is the written charge against Jesus. Each gospel records this placement of a sign. They've got different letters, but it was in three different languages. We're not gonna deal with that. Verse 37 says, above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He's killed for claiming to be a Messiah, which of course is what he is. But don't miss it. What's the theme of the book of Matthew? From Matthew 1.1 till this point, you're supposed to conclude that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. This is the conclusion Matthew wants you to come to. And there it is on the cross. Fourth, there's these two robbers. Verse 39, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 44, in the same way the rebels were crucified with him, they also heaped insults on him. On his right and left. Isn't that where James and John wanted to be? Where are they? Here, I think, is the king's throne. It's a cross. Now, who are these two guys? Matthew uses the same word, rebel, that he uses to describe Barabbas. They're guerrilla soldiers. They're revolutionaries. They're terrorists. They're not just thieves. You don't go on a cross for, for thievery. That's, come on, that's low level. They were probably companions and friends of Barabbas. And so if you think about it, was Barabbas intended for that center cross? If so, Jesus literally took his place, just as he is figuratively 
taking our place. Fifth, insults from folks walking by. A lot of insults in Matthew. But note here, even the strangers were making fun of him. Verse 39, those who passed by, just some folks walking by, they hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you, are, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. People can be so cruel, so hard-hearted when they see someone suffering. They can't even generate an ounce of compassion for this guy. There's deep hostility. There's deep anger on display. Six, there's the mocking by the chief priest teachers of the law and the elders. Now it's the Jews who are at this, for sure, the leadership, verse 41. At the, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. These are the same people who got him to go on trial. They had him arrested. They condemned him to death. They followed him clear to the cross. Make sure it happens, I guess. And they can't even speak to him directly. It's all in the third person. He saved others. Well, why don't they just say, you saved others, save yourself? No, they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe him. He trusts God, let God rescue him, because he said, I'm the son of God. Third person. And, and then there's this darkness. We're going to explore that a little bit next week, but I, I couldn't leave it alone today. Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. It's high noon, and everything becomes dark. Matthew never tries to explain how that happened. None of the Gospels actually explain how it happened but it's a sudden and it's a sustained darkness. You don't get the impression it's a dust storm or it's a cloudy day or some kind of eclipse. But I suspect a hush fell over the crowd. It got dark. You stop, you stop what you're doing. And you probably heard gasps of fear, maybe even some terror. But why darkness? Well, maybe to give the people a chance to think about what they're really doing here. When, uh, when, when Paul is confronted on the Damascus Road, he becomes blind for three days to contemplate what's going on. But perhaps the reason for this three hours of darkness is to place a veil of darkness over what's really going on. Jesus is now suffering at the hands of his father. He is now suffering the eternal wrath of God on sinners. And while the passion of the Christ, they can dramatically display, you know, the nailing of the hands, the New Testament doesn't really talk about that. It doesn't draw our focus there. And, and yeah, that's easy to depict, but you cannot depict what's going on in these three hours. There's no way you could depict the separation that Jesus is experiencing from the Father. The agony of Jesus at this moment is his alone. It's hidden from the eyes of those who mocked him. And in verse 46, about three in the afternoon, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? All alone in the darkness. Now this morning I want to spend the rest of our time, those are the events, you've heard them before. But let's step back a little bit from the text. Because when I looked at this text and tried to figure out what Matthew's trying to say, there are three things that really bothered me. And there's two things that stood out as so important, I don't want us to miss them. So, questions from the 21st century. I think to really understand this text, I had to ask myself some questions, and there were three of them. The first question comes, because it feels like something's missing. Well, it's not really missing, but it's different. It is unique in this section of Matthew. Something is missing that had been a staple of Matthew from the beginning. We said that Matthew's transformation is so revolutionary that he was able to draw connections between the Old Testament and his Jewish past with what's going on today in the life of Jesus and and really to the future. And that's what most of the, and it is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. You remember that, right? Someone say yes. Yeah. And yet you arrive at the climax of the Gospel of Matthew and what is missing? Question one, where are the Old Testament quotes? Where are they? Where are all the nods to, well, this is fulfilling that? Well, this is what the prophet said. See, the drink of gall is predicted in the Old Testament. The gambling for his clothes is predicted in the Old Testament. The mocking is predicted in the Old Testament. But Matthew just seems to let these things happen without any reference to the Old Testament. He's always highlighted how Jesus is fulfilling this or that prediction. He's always wanted us to know that, that Jesus ticks the boxes of Messiah. You can believe him because he's, he's ticking all the boxes over and over and over again. But Matthew gets to the cross and he doesn't tick the boxes. Why not? I find it striking that at this moment in the story, he leaves us to be on our own to make the connections. I found no satisfactory answer as to why that happens. I have some personal reflections. I don't trust my personal reflections very much. Maybe the illusions are are not identified because they're just so obvious. I mean, read Psalm 22, they're right there. Perhaps he's decided to let the other gospel writers make these connections because they do. Perhaps the most important thing for Matthew at this moment isn't the connections, but it is the story. The one he is following is dying. What could be more significant? So I couldn't really come up with a satisfactory explanation beyond some guesses. But what is clear is that Matthew records this momentous climax of an event in a a most unusual and really matter-of-fact way. The focus is on these events and they just kind of happen. They're part of the fabric of the story, 
and they're included because they're part of the will of God. But you have to discover on your own the connections. You make them. For example, what, what the soldiers did, especially what they wrote, couldn't be more truer. Thou art the, the king of the Jews. I mean, but mysteriously, the Jewish Messiah, the Lord of all, has been crucified like a common criminal. He hangs on the cross in helpless agony. And this divine drama is playing out and the soldiers watch it all and they're totally oblivious. I think subtly Matthew's saying, don't be like them. A turning point in the ages has arrived. The salvation of the world is being accomplished and the soldiers, <laughs> they're playing games. They gamble for his clothes. How mundane. And what they see is just another criminal, but in reality, it is the accomplishment of the sacrifices that will atone for the sins of the world, even their own. Second question I ask, why all this mocking? Why is there such extreme mocking? Now the Gospels, they tell us about it, and they tell us about the crucifixion, and they each have kind of a unique emphasis as they do, but in Matthew, what stands out above everything is this mocking, this jeering, this making fun of him. There's a lot of it, but what makes it stand out? Well, the mocking is virtually unanimous in Matthew. Everybody there takes part in it. He mentions those who pass by. He mentions the chief priests and the Jewish leaders, these two rebels, the, the terrorists on the cross on the other side. They're all mocking him. You get the impression that Jesus is the center of attention and that everyone around him that afternoon did nothing but make fun of him. He bore the wrath of men and of God all alone. The mocking, second, it's, it's intense and it's angry. There is deep hostility on display this afternoon. If Jesus was a murderer like Barabbas, you could understand that everybody hates him. Get him out of here. He's killed all these people. But you got here, God in the hand of angry sinners. And what do they do? They mock him. And they, the vitriol they pour out of a, of a guy who's never sinned. Third, those who mocked, I think they understand what Jesus taught. They seem to get the story a little bit better than the disciples, right? I mean, they understood what he was teaching. They don't mock him for, for advocating revolution. They don't mock him for teaching that you shouldn't pay your taxes. They mock him for what? For claiming to be king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the son of God. They heard it. They understood it. They just kind of mess up the whole temple part. They didn't get that quite right. And fourth, they want Jesus to act in a way that cancels his saving work. If these people had their way, Jesus would have saved himself. They would have been an eyewitness to a miracle. Jews looking for a sign. But if he saved himself, there would be no salvation, none at all. And so they're not really acting in their own best interest. They're fools. And if Jesus was going to save other people, he had to sacrifice himself. He could not save himself and do the will of God 
at the same time. And here in the story, men seem to have the upper hand, and Jesus appears to be a helpless victim as men pour out their anger on Jesus for not acting as they thought he should act. We would never write or think up a gospel like this. But this is true Christianity. Jesus died for us because without that death, we could never be saved. And all the taunting and the mocking in the world was not going to distract him from enduring the punishment for our sin. Question number three, who really killed Jesus? Who's responsible for this? Our text this morning ends with a very stark truth. The king is dead. Verse 50, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Three hours had passed. The darkness is done. It must have seemed like an eternity of darkness. And when the sun shines again at three o'clock, all the focus comes back to this man in the middle. And he looks, he had to have looked terrible. And something has happened to him in these last three hours. His chest is probably heaving. The death rattle is in his throat. Verse 46 says, about three in the afternoon, he cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 48, they hear that. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They're waiting for this big final miracle. But he's gone. The people on either side of him are still alive, but he is not. And it happened quickly. It happened suddenly. Almost as if he decided it was time to die. Here's a fascinating note to consider. In describing the moment of death, Matthew doesn't say that Jesus died. He never uses that phrase. None of the Gospels do. Why not? I think they want us to understand the voluntary nature of his passing. No one took his life. He gave his life for us. And Matthew, he doesn't go into anything medical, kind of like Luke does. He's no interest in that. The end comes how in Matthew with a cry for which there are no words and a cry for which there is no interpretation. It is startling because it's a loud cry. People don't usually die shouting, especially if you've been beaten and tortured. Could it be that Jesus has proven that he has power even in death? He doesn't seem to have died from exhaustion. It seems he died because he let go of that which he could have preserved. And it seems at this point, he just stopped breathing. In the end, who killed him? No one. He gave his life as a ransom for many. So those are my three questions. I gave them my best shot at an answer. 
But I want to make two summary observations about our text. As we step back and look, I want to make sure we know these things are very clear. Number one, Jesus is not a dashing hero. This isn't the story of a hero. In Matthew's telling of the story, you don't find Jesus playing the hero role. This is not the story of the glorious death of a martyr. We don't read his heroic valor or his great faith or some sudden victory. This is no Disney fantasy where someone rises as hero to win the battle. The story is not crafted like a hero story that we would tell. Therefore, are these verses part of your life verse list of verses? Probably not. Why not? Because these verses don't encourage us. They don't inspire us. They don't comfort or guide us or give us a sense of hope. So what do they do? These verses put on full display human sin and how free we are to pursue sin as far as we want to take it. And here, human freedom is placed alongside an unexplainable divine silence. There is terror in this text. And this terror makes no sense on a human level. On a human level, this text makes no sense. The mocking and the torture of the innocent and righteous Son of God, they are not intended to make any sense. The mocking and the torture, none of it. It is written how and why. It is written to shatter our sensibilities. It is written to portray the depths of irrational human depravity. And running parallel to that depravity is the patient endurance of God, which goes on for so long that the Son himself screams with his feelings of abandonment, my God, why? Here on full display is the frightening mystery of a God who seems to us to be so disconnected to the world. Here's the God of a deist, silent, inactive. Our text this morning portrays divine absence. Where is he as he lets his son go through this? Isaiah would say, truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. And except for the darkness, there is no supernatural anything in our text. Ancient literature, the stories of the death of the king and the martyr, they're always surrounded with supernatural activity. But not this story. Because this is real life. This isn't myth. It's not fantasy. Now next Sunday, we will see an explosion of the supernatural. And except for the darkness... It all takes place when? After he's dead. Before he dies, the passive son is matched by a passive God. 
as they both seem to just step back and watch the scene unfold. So much so that those watching the spectacle, they just taunt Jesus and they shout out, your God doesn't care. He's indifferent. But after he dies, things change and God will fight for the one who has not fought for himself. The mystery is only why God seems so late in coming to the table. But that's for next Sunday morning. And many of you know what this feels like. God on the sidelines as you suffer and as you struggle. But why should your experience be any different than a holy savior? We grouse at God when he's silent, but at least we're not hanging naked on a cross for everybody to see. The example we have to follow is the sacred example of a savior who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's our example. How far will you follow? Observation number two. The passion has been at the heart of Matthew since forever. It's rather interesting that the passion of Matthew doesn't take up very much space in proportion to the rest of the book. Mark is often described as as a passion narrative with a little bit of introduction, but not Matthew. Matthew's narrative is proportionately smaller in the space it allows uh, 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 in, the, in the gospel. Why? Well, well, partly because Matthew's devoted a big chunk of his book to what? Five discourses. The Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the missional discourse, the, the parable discourse, the church life discourse, Olivet, the, the, the teaching on the Mount of Olives. They're long, big sections. And so I think he gets away with fewer words describing the passion because in a lot of ways he's got all that teaching. But what's been interwoven in Matthew since the beginning? Where this is all headed? Matthew 2 opens and it's the Jewish leaders. They're working with Herod and what happens? They kill all those babies. In Matthew 14, the story of John the Baptist's death is told in such a way that it anticipates the cruelty that the Savior himself will eventually face. And there have been all of these conflict stories and the anger of the Jewish leadership as it grows and grows until they put him on trial. And he goes before Pilate. And there have been predictions five times that this is coming. Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus on a cross, by the time you get there in Matthew, it's no surprise if you've been paying attention to the narrative. This is most definitely the climax of the story that Matthew is telling, but it is intended to make us consider how we view our king. Our king on a cross, how crazy is that? And that's the point. Here's where the story's been heading all along, but it doesn't make sense. Matthew's asking us to believe that the one we think we should follow ended up suffering the most offensive death in human history. And if that's what makes you scratch your head, then you're in good company. 
Why do we have that kind of a faith? How can that be? I'm going to read a text. I would encourage you just to close your eyes and listen. You can open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 1. It's from the ESV. Listen to how the early followers of Christ responded. Paul writes, the message about the cross doesn't make any sense for lost people. But for those of us who are being saved, it is God's power at work. As God says in the scriptures, I will destroy the wisdom of all who claim to be wise. I will confuse those who think they know so much. What's happened to those wise people? What happened to those experts in the scriptures? What happened to the ones who think they have all the answers? Didn't God show that the wisdom of this world is foolish? God was wise and decided not to let the people of this world use their own wisdom to learn about him. Instead, God chose to save only those who believe the foolish message we preach. Jews ask for miracles. And Greek wants something that sounds wise. But we preach that Christ was nailed to a cross. Most Jews have a problem with this. And most Gentiles think it is foolish. Our message is God's power and wisdom for the Jews and the Greeks that he's chosen. Even when God is foolish, he is wiser than everyone else. And even when God is weak, he is stronger than everyone else. The message the world hates is the truth that we celebrate. The message that the world hates is the only message that will save a lost sinner. And the message the world hates is the only message that we should proclaim. Christ died on the cross bearing the penalty for our sin and setting up a pattern for the kind of life that I should live as a Christ follower. The cross of Christ is such a glorious mystery that it will take us all eternity to begin to fathom what God has done in this magnificent event to his glory. And one of the dangers of being in church too much, don't misunderstand what I'm saying there, it's a danger, it's not an excuse. The danger is this. We begin to think that it all makes sense. If you come to church long enough and sing the hymns and pray the prayers, listen to enough sermons, you start thinking to yourself, you know, this stuff really makes sense. And eventually we forget how radical the message of the gospel really is. So what does it mean for us? Well, it means we gotta keep preaching the cross of Christ boldly and aggressively. It is our only message. It means we should not be surprised that when we preach the cross of Christ, the world is gonna reject us. Okay. And never water down the gospel. Don't shy away from the message of the cross. We need to tell it like it is and let the chips fall where they may. 
So what do you do with a text like this? You go long. We're not leaving. What's the most important application we could find today? Well, normally we would wait for Good Friday this month and celebrate the Lord's table. And that was our plan. But how can we wait after we have explored the meaning of the cross this morning? We can't. For you see, our best application is to come to a moment and worship our Savior. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, it's now. I'm going to pray. If you don't have an element, the ushers will give you one. We're going to sing that song. I want you to take communion as whenever. You've got two verses. Remember the Savior. Worship Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, let us be overwhelmed with what you've done for us. You have bled and you have died, and you have devoted your head for such a sinner as I. It was for crimes that I've done that you hung on the tree, so that now we want to remember you the cracker represents your broken body. The cup, the juice, your blood spilled out for us. Let us never get comfortable with that truth. But let it overwhelm us in such a way that we bow in worship before a God who could devise such a plan and then pull it off. Only you could do that. So we owe you our lives. Let us worship you as we remember you today. In Jesus' name.